Welcome to episode 12 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. As you know, I'm a big believer in building communities. So today I'm very excited to welcome Linda Lian. Now, Linda is the co-founder and CEO of Common Room, a community growth platform for today's fastest growing companies. Linda founded Common Room in 2020 to help bring organizations of all sizes closer to their communities. To date, they've raised over $50 million from the likes of Sarah Guo at Greylock, Danny Reimer at Index, and Nextplay Ventures. Before Common Room, Linda led product marketing for serverless computing at Amazon Web Services. Prior to AWS, Linda was an associate at Madrona Venture Group, and Linda began her career as an investment banking analyst at Morgan Stanley in New York. Now, Linda, I've heard great things from friends, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alex. Excited to be here. Let's dive right in. Now, I know you emigrated from China to the U.S. at five years old. I'd love to start by rewinding the tape a little bit and hearing about your childhood and upbringing. And I guess to what extent that ultimately led you to building communities now? Ooh, starting right out the gate with a going a deep dive into the past. <laughs> um, yeah, that's correct. I uh, am a first-generation immigrant, and I think, like many first-generation immigrants, uh, you know, you learn that the way to be successful is to be resourceful. Um, my family was just my mom, my dad, and me. Um, when we moved to the States, we were fairly far away from any other relatives. I think, in fact, we only had uh, one direct relative uh, living kind of several states away. And so not speaking the language natively, kind of being culturally different, um, all those things meant that if I wanted to be successful, um, I needed to kind of make an effort to build relationships, to gain knowledge and context that like maybe wasn't directly afforded to me. Um, and so you know, I've always loved how, depending on your interests, what you want to learn or develop, um, you can always find a community of experts willing to help and share. And I'm sure, Alex, like you've experienced the same thing in building your podcast, right? Communities are a incredibly powerful platform of social and economic opportunity. And what's so powerful is that modern software companies, and in particular, you know, in recent years, SaaS, open source, open core, web three organizations have realized that what they need to be is more than a product um, to be competitive in today's age. They need to build that brand and that service and that platform of education and economic opportunity that provides their community of users and champions, you know, value in a way that is so much more beyond just the software and the tooling that they build. Um, and so, yeah, that's really kind of my um, my past and why uh, the education and community and all of that is incredibly important to me. That's really awesome to hear, Linda. And I know Josh Wolf over at Lux, he, he has a great saying that chips on shoulders put chips in pockets. And I guess coming from really knowing knowing no one, Linda, to now, you know, building building the the great thing that is common room. You know, how has that in turn, you know, really driven you to, you know, find your people, find your group, find your community from really nothing to now something that's right at the opposite end of that spectrum? <laughs> yeah, um, 
I would say my career has been pretty non-traditional in that it's been a bit of a detour after detour. Um, you know, Alex, you did a great intro about my background, but if you look at my resume, you might think I've been lost in trying to find myself for the past 10 years. Um, I don't have a typical kind of, you know, career ladder into being a startup CEO. I think I've always been very motivated by curiosity and learning versus climbing a career ladder. So, you know, I started my career as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley doing mergers and acquisitions. And 2012 was still kind of the heyday of like bad investment banking culture. And I'd be working 100 hour work weeks do, doing these massive cross border multi billion dollar deals, you know, the buying and selling of kind of these slower growing mature companies. Um, I was essentially an Excel jockey. It wasn't fun, but I think what interested me the most was learning to read the financials of the company. Um, and those financials told a story. It told you whether the company was healthy, if it was growing, if their new product line was working, if their customers were retaining. Um, and, you know, these are just numbers on a spreadsheet, but I think it peaked in me this intense curiosity about the people and the products and I guess the stories behind those numbers. And even more than that, I wanted to like know the origin. Like how did these multi-billion dollar, multi-region, multi-product line companies start? Um, well, they started with someone having an idea in a room somewhere. And so, you know, I think ever since then, like I knew that building and sort of early stage where ideas become reality and, you know, reality one day becomes a fortune 500. Like I wanted to kind of go back to that origin point. And um, yeah, I think, you know, it's taken me across a bunch of different roles from finance to early stage VC to product marketing and product management. Um, but that's been the consistent thread in me finding my people. I really like that in that having that background from operating within both the public and private companies, I think is really great to inform at least your current position now as a founder. And I think it definitely pays dividends to those operating in the private markets, whether they are a founder or a funder, and to sort of have, have at least that holistic view as to what's going on in that big picture, I guess, on, on both sides of that table. So I, I, I really like that there, Linda. I guess transitioning slightly from that how did you first get involved into the world of startups yeah so a lot of the biggest opportunities in my life and my career have come from a, me doing a cold outreach to someone on linkedin <laughs> and i think this kind of goes back to you know the power of community because linkedin is one of the iconic companies that really has created this platform of economic opportunity and this incredible community of professionals right and so um you know i had been a financial analyst at a late stage startup at the time called lookout mobile security and i was moving back to seattle which is where i'm from didn't really know what a finance person would do in Seattle. It wasn't quite, you know, the finance hub that SF and New York were. And so I cold messaged uh, David Rosenthal, who now is one of the lovely hosts of Acquired. Uh, but at the time, he was an investor at a early stage uh, VC fund called Madrona Venture Group. And I pinged him on LinkedIn. I said, hey, I think you know, I could be really a, a successful venture investor. I would love to try this out. And, um, 
you know, he took the time to meet with me and that's how I got into uh, investing. Um, and yeah, I think even the journey from being an investor to being a founder was kind of another set of twists and turns. But um, I did enjoy my time as an investor. I think one of the best things about it is the opportunity to dive deep into industries and business models that are really fundamentally reinventing the way that software is built and distributed and adopted. And so I kind of got to see firsthand the rise of community-led or user-led or developer-led adoption um, and product-led growth, right, which are all kind of buzzwords that we say that really fall under the biggest, the bigger umbrella of, you know, bottoms up or end user led adoption. Um, you know, I saw the rise of commercial open source as one of the fastest growing, most viable business models out there for developer tooling. And then I started to see the next iteration of, you know, community led and Web3 and crypto and blockchain. And so my experience as an early stage investor, like fundamentally, I think, shaped the way I viewed the world um, and uh, kind of those early foundations for my thinking behind uh, building a community growth platform. What I like about your position, Linda, is it's often the traditional route for founders to then exit and then pivot to the other side of the table with venture. Yet in your case, you know, you started venture investing to now building common room to the great piece that it is today. Talk me through that journey to you now ultimately founding and commanding Common Room? Yeah, uh, there's like a funny saying in VC, which is almost like, you know, you're not, you're kind of a salesperson and you're really selling yourself. And I think it's really hard to sell yourself when you're earlier in career um, because you don't have a ton of experience. And so my like advice for anyone who wants to get into venture investing is to go and build something first, right? Because you'll never have more empathy for founders or understand what it's like to build something from scratch um, the way that you would if you pursued it. And um, in that effort, you actually become such a more impactful uh, investor. But um, yeah, my path from venture uh, investing to building Common Room, um, you know, I talked about how I was able to dive deep into these really innovative spaces like developer tooling and open source and, uh, you know, PLG and crypto. And these early impressions, you know, led me to believe that there was this kind of seismic shift happening um, within how you know software is being adopted and distributed. And this was very much validated by my next experience, uh, so I left VC because I was very junior and I didn't have much to sell in terms of myself and I wanted to go build and I wanted to be an operator and to kind of, you know, be where the action was happening. Um, and so I went to AWS, Amazon Web Services, to lead product marketing for a very fast growing se section of our business um, called serverless computing. And at AWS, we found that many of our most innovative you know, services were experiencing gangbusters growth, not through kind of this like traditional sales led model, but rather through enabling developers to get hands on with the product, um, you know, helping them feel supported and then building and scaling what we call champion programs 
that would spread education enablement from a core set of developers that were really our biggest champions to more developers, right? It's activating that community-led flywheel. Um, and when we set out to build these programs, it felt like it really should be a win-win for our developers and our business. But what I found was that the tooling to enable this new engagement model was virtually non-existent, right? A lack of management tooling meant that our community members, our developers were often kind of screaming into the void, right? They're tweeting at us, they're submitting issues into our GitHub repo, they're in our, you know, huge Slack asking a bunch of questions. And um, as a modern brand, like your users, your members, your community, they expect 24-7, almost instantaneous engagement across a wide now variety of channels. And despite our best efforts to keep up, despite, you know, all of the resourcing that we staffed, um, this fundamental lack of intelligence and analytics and workflows and tooling meant that keeping up with all of this was literally manual. Like we would sit in Slack or we'd check Slack like 50 times a day, right? And anyone who has a Slack community knows that this can be a really difficult thing, especially as you're scaling. Um, it was really hard to identify signal from noise on all the feedback we were getting, all these conversations that are happening. I call them like ambient conversations, right? Like your users, your customers are talking about you every single day, every single second, every single hour on all sorts of different conversational platforms uh, online. And, um, you know, how do you actually take advantage of that to build a better product and to inform your roadmap you're leaving huge amounts of opportunity on the table to really hear what your practitioners are saying about your product. Um, and then I think finally, you know, so many companies I know today are building, in effect, champion programs. Um, AWS has the Global Heroes program, their Community Builders program. You know, Microsoft is very famous for their MVP program. You know, you think about Salesforce with Trailblazer as well. Almost every single, you know, hyper growth technology company or, uh, you know, fast growing Fortune 500 is either building one or has one and wants to grow it. And so we built our champion program at AWS from scratch. And it was an incredibly manual effort of, uh, let's just say, Internet stalking, right? You're trying to go out and find, like, who are the individuals that are really evangelizing your product? They're deep product experts. They propensity to want to share their knowledge on social media or with others and like don't even get me started on how we try to measure and report on the out outcomes of these programs right and so um you know it was this weird situation where our developer community was the biggest growth turbine for our business but we had no way to understand it uh, we had no way to predict it we had no way to take action um and we had no way to affect it. And that was incredibly disturbing, I think. Um, and so many of the fastest growing organizations today, you know, many of our customers like Figma, um, Webflow, HubSpot, Atlassian, Confluent, DBT Labs, Grafana, they all know that partnering with our community is critical to their ability to build better products, have happier users, and ultimately grow faster. But they're very much stuck in the same situation I was in. And so when I experienced this personally for myself, 
plus kind of what I had seen as a VC on the broader landscape and the broader macro trends, I knew that this was the problem that I was really passionate about and wanted to go solve and like the vision that I, you know, very much believed in. I love that explanation of the problem there, Linda. There really is this lag to keep up with everything, right? And ensure your finger is on the pulse with those you're operating with. I guess from that, and at its most basic level, what is Common Room? And how does it help companies such as Figma or Atlassian activate their community? Um, so Common Room, uh, I think, you know, maybe it helps to kind of explain what we mean when we say community. Uh, we've been kind of talking about it. But, you know, for folks that have been around uh, in the previous iteration, I guess, community 2.0, community was this word that was kind of associated with like support forums, or even like, own social networks like Yammer. And that was almost like before my time. But community was this place, it was a forum, it was kind of like, you know, a private social network. Um, today, when we talk about community and when we hear our customers say community, um, it's a much more broadly defined term, right? It, they're really talking about their community as their users, their champions, anywhere, their partners, their developers, their practitioners, anywhere where someone who wants to engage with their brand and their product wants to talk to them. And these conversations happen on chat, in forums, digitally, in person, in conferences, in meetups. Um, and so, like, what happens is people no longer can, like, companies can no longer control where their community wants to engage with them. Just because someone has a problem doesn't mean they're going to send you a ticket in Zendesk. They're actually probably more likely to tweet about it or compare notes with their peers. And so... What happens is this creates like a massive problem for community leaders, developer advocates, which are you know the people that use our software or CXO, because you're no longer able to direct that traffic and understanding of your users. You have to meet them where they are and you have to kind of correlate it yourself. So many of our customers had built whole teams to read through these channels, acting as a human data pipe. It's fundamentally error prone. It's not a good use of people's times at all. And so what we do, uh, Common Room, we're an intelligent community growth platform that lets you take all the conversations and activities happening across all the different surface areas where your community engages. And then we marry it with your business data, right, your product usage data, your HubSpot or Salesforce account data, so that you finally have the visibility and actionable insights you need to compete and perform within this shift in how you know, consumers expect to be treated. So just as an example, um, you know, you can see within Common Room that someone who works at Nike recently joined your Slack community is asking about a POC and await within the Nike account, which is part of your, you know, prospect list in Salesforce, we're seeing that there's all this activity from various members who may be engaging in your meetups tweeting at you or otherwise kind of doing this groundswell of engagement and activity. And so what does that mean for the business? Well, that means that you can have a more contextual conversation with not only the account Nike, but specifically the individual champions and practitioners within that company who are really interested in adopting your product, right? 
you also get all of these conversations. And so you can take, uh, you know, we layer on top a lot of AI and intelligence, and you can actually look at all the topics uh, that are happening across all these conversations so that you can route it back to your product team and build a better product. And then finally, right, you get this amazing digital relationship manager. There's a profile for every member, where they work, what they're saying. Um, And you can really, you know, in the example I gave previously, start to build these flywheels of advocacy. You're sourcing speakers for a conference. Well, what are the attributes you're looking for? Uh, Maybe they need to be part of, you know, your tier one managed accounts because you want really exciting people from big logos to be talking. You want them to be deep product experts in your newest shipped feature, right? And you want them to be influencers on social media. And no no other software tool today lets you drill down into that level of uh, detail in order to find your champions and to you know appreciate them and to really get that flywheel of advocacy going. And so I think communities have often been associated with a softer, kind of fuzzier way to think about impact on your business. But because we have all these uh, customers that have, you know, amazing communities and we can tie all of this community engagement data with their CRM or data warehouse data, we've been able to show across the majority of our customers um, that we've looked into this for that community engagement. It's it's almost intuitive, but you see it in the numbers now and it's really exciting. Community engagement leads to larger deal sizes, better adoption, faster time to close, like all the things that you'd expect right um and so yeah that's what we do and that's how we help um you know companies grow better and faster flywheel of advocacy i love that term linda (laughs) i think common room really does provide the ability to make those informed decisions and really in turn remove that informational asymmetry between those in your community and the actual operators in your company When you began setting out to solve this problem, Linda, was it something you initially wanted to tackle alone? Or did you want to find other great minds to look come on board to look come on board to join the problem solving team from the outset? Yeah, building a company is never something you want to tackle alone. (laughs) And it's unrealistic that you will be successful if you go at it alone alone. Um, so what I mean by that is while early collaborators and advisors come in and out, right, been building this, like very rarely, even though I was um, in many respects a solo founder, very rarely have I ever been truly alone because I've always had, you know, folks that I'm bouncing ideas around with. Um, they, you know, you kind of think about your startup journey as this road of many uh twists and turns, but also these very helpful individuals that kind of come in and out at the right time and kind of change the course of uh, the journey. And I think that's part of the fun part. Um, And so I think, you know, I wanted to start the company with that perfect team mix. I think, what is it? It's like the hipster, the hustler and the hacker. (laughs) I would be the hustler, I think. But I didn't have that, right? And so after our seed round was done, I was essentially a solo founder for a period, a short period of time. Hipster, hustler, and hacker. You are firing some great terms today, Linda. I'm, I'm loving these. 
You have these now three incredible co-founders. Why is finding the right co-founders important to you? And I guess what advice would you have to entrepreneurs trying to tackle the most challenging problems alone without a co-founder? Yes, my co-founders are amazing. Um, my co-founders are Francis Liu, who heads up uh, design, product design, Viraj uh, Mahdi, our CTO, and Tom Kleinpeter, our chief software architect. And so because I was, in effect, a solo founder um, after the seed round, I kind of actually had the luxury to be a bit more considered about who we wanted to bring on and when. Um, you know, these weren't my college buddies, and we all decided to start something. <laughs> uh, I had never worked with or met Francis, Roger, Tom before this. In other words, like we didn't know each other at all. Um, this might be a, an interesting pattern, but I cold messaged all of them on LinkedIn. I was on, you know, I joke LinkedIn is like Tinder for enterprise. I was just on LinkedIn every day thinking about you know, who would be the perfect person for Common Room at this point in our journey? What attributes and skill sets would they have? In what ways would they be, you know, better than me or compliment me on things that I didn't know what to do? And this goes back to, like, there's no way you can start a company alone. You're never alone, right? Um, and so I decided to bring on Francis, my design co-founder, first. Uh, and by that, I mean I was looking very in a targeted way for an incredible product design co-founder because we were very early, we were doing customer discovery. And I felt that the most important thing for customer discovery, right? This is where you're talking to people that are nice enough to give you their time. And you're like, tell me about the problems. Like you're trying to really understand the, the problems and the jobs to be done and kind of the problem space. I thought that the most important thing was kind of to be able to sketch the outlines of the vision and the product and get that feedback. And when I say sketch, I mean literally like draw rectangles and show visually to these, uh, you know, design partners what we would build and get their feedback on if it would be helpful. And so it was just me. I am non-technical, I don't know how to code. And then my product designer, who is non-technical, non-technical, doesn't know how to code. He is, however, an incredible product designer, right? And so we spent probably two quarters just talking to our the community of community leaders we had built, showing them Figma design mocks over and over again, uh, tweaking it based on their feedback, going back, really validating our hypothesis and our problem using visual designs um, of a not real hypothetical product. <laughs> we didn't write a single line of code. We didn't even know if it would be possible to build, although, you know, I think you can assume most things are possible today. Um, but once we felt like more confident about our direction and what it like crystallized kind of what we wanted, even like what problems we wanted to solve for, that's when you know I brought on Barrage and Tom, my engineering co-founders, to help us build it. And so don't be afraid of starting out solo. It can be a blessing in disguise in that what you really need are people that can complement what you your weaknesses. And I think when you start off with a founding team, you oftentimes will realize that what you thought you needed on this journey of building a company, um, may not actually be the skill sets that your co-founders have. And I think it's in those moments that you see 
you know, co-founder drama, um, you know, things that may or may not work out. And so while, while starting off solo may seem scary, statistically, there's evidence that solo founders can have a, a higher track record of success. And so, you know, some of the greatest founders in the world were solo founders, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, just to name a couple of the obvious ones. But um, the TLDR here is don't be afraid. And you may find that it is a blessing in disguise. Well put, Linda. I'm actually curious to know, you spent over a year in stealth. What was the rationale behind this? And how did it really allow you to make your mark when launching? Yeah, we decided to start. We are a very customer centric company. By that, I mean, philosophically, we believe that uh, being very close with our customers, our community, really understanding their problems, really shipping features and product that solve those problems is the key to building something valuable. And so during that year in stealth, all we were doing was building a design partner base. And by design partner, I mean industry leading organizations that were community oriented and community first, who believed in this vision that in the future or and today, community is one of the biggest most important lifebloods of their business and that the tooling had not kept up. And so we all wanted to build something together that would help all of us realize this vision that we believed in. And so in that year, all we did was build and talk to them and build and talk to them. And I think what it helped us do is by the time we came out of stealth, we had kind of this dossier, I guess, of really incredible industry-leading companies that wanted to be a part of this. And so, uh, you know, we weren't kind of starting from zero. I think when we came out of Stealth, you know, we had been working with Confluent and Figma and Notion and some really incredible companies um, who are still, you know, our customers today. And so I think that's been one of the most... uh, rewarding parts is just the fact that a lot of these early partners, in fact, all of them have become in-production customers. And that journey has been an exciting partnership for us, right? Asana is another one. Um, I think that, you know, there's stories of some companies that spend three to five years in stealth, like that would be tough. But a year felt just like the right uh, balance between being in stealth and just simply building and then really wanting to get our product out there, even in, you know, what I consider even today to be the very earliest innings of our product and our platform um, and just getting it into the hands of more folks who can, again, like give us that feedback and really kind of push our roadmap in the right direction and to challenge us. Totally. We're getting a bit of a community section here, Linda, with Common Room building that of its own, I guess, from a very early, early stage to then ultimately having these as really strong, substantial customers now. I guess from that, how does Common Room currently separate the signal from the noise and ultimately differentiate itself? 
That's right. Uh, Community-led is a hot area, right? Um, so we're the only tool that brings together community engagement. By that, I mean, you know, who went to your meetup? Who, uh, what conversations are they ha- having, having about you in Slack or in Discord or in GitHub or on Twitter, right, or in Reddit? So we're the only tool that kind of brings together all of that community engagement and then marries it with product usage data in your Snowflake data warehouse or customer data in your Salesforce or HubSpot um, into a single place. And then we're also the only platform that uses intelligence to then surface actionable insights, really interesting personas, um, you know, people you should be pay attention to, organizations that you should uh, take a look at because they seem like they're really interested in adopting your product. And we do all of this to help companies discover what's most important. And then we offer highly configurable, easy to use automations and workflows that then let you take action to nurture these personas to measure the program impact and to collaborate and route customer requests across the organization. So you can say we're kind of, um, you know, the new I call it a digital relation, like an intelligent digital digital relationship manager. Uh, it gets a little bit I don't want to over intellectualize it, but if you think about CDPs like Segment or Snowflake, like they don't have a UI layer, right? They're kind of trying, they're like the first iteration of trying to solve this problem of you have customer data everywhere. Um, but what if you had an incredible, you know, almost Facebook groups like UI on top of that? And on top of that, you had these incredibly simple to use workflows that help you tie into your business. Like that's what we do. And that becomes really powerful. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, now taking a step back and looking at really from a from a bigger picture, Linda, why is community more important than ever? And really, how are these organizations now using it as both a differentiator, but also a growth engine? Uh, for like fast growing modern software companies, their end users are their biggest turbine of growth, right? This notion of tops down selling or selling into some mysterious budget holder who then makes this monolithic vendor decision and pushes it down to all the practitioners. Like, of course, that still exists in certain pockets of the industry, but we, all of us as consumers of software in our day-to-day, you know, private lives, but also our work lives, like we know that that's not where the future is going. Uh, You know, I want to use the tools at my work that I want to use, right? If my uh, skip level or my boss's boss comes and tells me I have to use something, it's very strange because they should be focused on more important things than what I personally need to be productive. And so if you think about the breakout companies, you know, these IPOs of tomorrow, Webflow, Grafana, Figma, DBT Labs, just to name a couple of our customers, their growth trajectory is differentiated in that it was their community of users who evangelized and adopted their tooling and resulted in their success. Uh, there's companies I know who have reached hundreds of millions of dollars in ARR uh, or have even gone public through a 99% inbound user-led growth model, right? Like, this is so different than the world that Salesforce was built for in 1999, where you hire a of outbound sellers to dial for dollars into the enterprise and then, you know, get everyone on these like perpetual licenses. It's just the world has changed. And so 
these companies got to where they are through a community engagement model that's very different from the enterprise SaaS companies of yesteryear, right? And so it's obvious, it's so obvious that this is the future and there's no looking back. And uh, again, like Common Room is the intelligent community growth platform that really enables them to get that visibility and take the action. From building these communities, what have really been some of the challenges that you've that you've faced so far, especially when you know building building communities that actually scale? So one of the defining characteristics of communities is that they are human. Um, it's conversational. It takes a brand and it gives them a human face in the in the form of community managers and developer advocates and, you know, all of the great individuals that engage with people every single day on all of these channels. And so as your community grows and some communities grow very, very quickly as the business uh, takes off, um, what happens is you have to be able to scale your engagement, but still keep it authentic and human. And this is where a lot of uh, improvements and technological advancements in AI, NLP sentiment can actually assist a community manager in scaling up their ability and automating some of their ability to engage while still keeping it superhuman. So we have a product line that focuses on just this, right? How do we give back to the community and answer the questions that they need answered and welcome them in ways that they feel welcomed and keep it authentic and human, but also do it at massive scale where, you know, you have 60,000 developers in a Slack and it's a constant, you know, almost like waterfall of conversations. How can a brand be part of that conversation in a way that's authentic, human, but scalable. Um, I think another piece of the challenge is really kind of understanding who everybody is, right? Um, so one of the things that we do is we'll actually be able to tell you this person who tweeted at you is also a person who's gone to three of your meetups and they're really active in answering questions in your Discord channel. And so their impact is really high on your community and you should probably reward recognize, incentivize, uh, you know, put them in a champion program. And again, this is where huge advancements in AI, right, in uh, data can help. Um, and so I think that this is one of those situations where technological advancements can actually bring a more human touch back to technology and the way that we engage with our users and our customers that isn't a ticketing queue. <laughs> um, and that's really exciting, right? Uh, I always tell our company, like our, our vision is to transform the relationships between organizations and their customers to be more human. And we're finally at a point from a technology perspective where that's actually within reach and it doesn't have to be so transactional. It doesn't have to be, you know, outreach sequences and support tickets. Yeah, I agree with you there, Linda. It definitely is the catalyst of change to make things human, right? Because at the end of the day, humans are the things that ultimately drive these wonderful businesses that unlock this economic opportunity. 
I'm interested to hear your view on how the role of community is going to change or at least evolve into the future with, a, with say, the intersection of Web3 and perhaps crypto. Yeah, this is a super exciting space that we are just getting into. And we've been working with some incredible companies like Chainlink and Metaplex and Azuki and others. Um, it's going to become more and more important, right? End user, community-led growth. It's an increasingly dominant method of adopting any piece of technology. Um, whether you're running a cloud software service or selling commercial open source software, companies need to be much more user and community centric. Uh, commercial open source and developer facing companies realize this over the past decade. They need to kind of design themselves in a way that's fundamentally different, where they're almost co-building and growing their open source community because that is their distribution. And that is how they're raising rounds of funding. And, you know, in this, in, in some open source projects, it's even their shared R and D. And so figuring out how to kind of make their customers more successful with this entirely new customer journey is part of community. Um, and like on the subject of open source, like we sometimes see in companies like developer advocates or open source maintainers are pretty siloed from the commercial product and the commercial arm of the company. We don't think that makes any sense, right? The community and the DevRel teams at the fastest growing commercial OSS companies, um, they understand that they're serving their developers and customers on this continuous customer journey or community journey where some developers will never need to pay for the commercial product, but many will. And so it's really on kind of the business to have the right contextual conversations and to really earn trust with every single developer, whether that developer needs or doesn't need their commercial product. Um, and so I think with open source, open core developer advocacy teams are realizing that their strategic value is not only to be responsible for both the health and growth of their community, but to contribute to the technical ecosystem and help users be successful along, again, their company's kind of continuous customer journey, which so often begins in community. It begins with a PR into a GitHub repo, right? It begins with a question in a Slack. Um, and so we help them bridge that. And I think even open source, open core, and the kind of commercialization of open source is a very nascent form of, uh, it's a very like early area of the industry in terms of evolving business models, evolving ways of thinking about what marketing means or what sales means or what community means. But to your point, Alex, like taking it even a step further, we're kind of seeing the next iteration of this open source philosophy in Web3 and crypto, right? These companies, I call them community native Community managers are often the first hire or effectively like the founders of the crypto project, the DAO, uh, you know, whatever it is. And uh, for those folks, what really starts to matter is sentiment. It's not if this person works at Nike, but it's their digital identity. Like it's the fact that, you know, CryptoKitties123 is one of your biggest champions in your Discord server and your Twitter you don't care about who they are, where they live as like a 
physical <laughs> person, right? You care about kind of their digital engagement with you. And that starts to be a really interesting space when you think about the evolution of CRM technologies and like what it means to like know who your customers are or who your users are. Um, and so I think like, you know, for what it's worth, like the, the models that crypto is kind of innovating on in terms of call it like user engagement or customer engagement is such an exciting frontier where it truly is incredibly decentralized. It's okay if it's anonymous, it doesn't matter. It's really about like, who are my champions and how are they helping me? And what is uh, the sentiment of my community and what is everyone saying? Um, and, you know, our technology enables that as well. And so I see it all on this continuum, um, but it's definitely like an interesting and exciting evolution. I too am equally excited, Linda, to see really where this will, will lead and ultimately what new technologies and, and interests will arise from it. I guess, moving on slightly, what would be the greatest lesson that you've learned so far from building Common Room? Ooh, there's been so many. Um, the biggest lesson is that our team, my team, the Common Room team, is our greatest asset and competitive differentiator and like what makes this whole journey worth it. Um, and so, you know, I think it's kind of obvious, but especially in times like this, uh, you feel really lucky. Wow. I love it. And I think it, it bodes so nicely to the whole ethos and drive of common room itself, right? It is, it is all about the people. The people are the face of the change. So I'm really, really about that Linda. Staying on this on this vein of lessons, what data points have you gathered or at least lessons learned that you've been able to leverage from your experience, both at AWS and also at Madrona when you were on the other side of the table? So funding a company and fundraising for a company are incredibly different experiences, <laughs> almost, yeah, almost such that you don't gain much understanding of one, by being on the other side, if that makes sense, you have to experience both because they are just so different. Totally. Um, I, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is that I, uh, that I understood really deeply from being a VC and which is helpful is that early stage <laughs> to go back to what we just talked about. It is all about the people. It's about the team. It's about the individual investor you want to pick, not the fund. Because what you need is like people who will walk through the valley of shadows with you because you all believe in the same vision and you trust that you're going to get there. Um, and I knew that, like I knew that as a VC, I saw it very clearly. We invested in people. We invested in teams. We invested in spaces where we believe that the team would go and figure it out and make changes if they needed to. And then as a founder, it's the same thing, Right you get a VC that you want to call every single day. You uh, find a set of you know folks in your early team who you have chemistry with and who you want to be around and who you can pro uh, solve problems with. And that's, yeah, people matter most. <laughs> Absolutely, Linda. And moving on from this, I know last week we had David McDonough, the founder and CEO over common stock on the show. And whilst their pre-revenue, their focus is building really a platform people love engaging with, right? A 
central focus on consumer retention. Why is consumer engagement and consumer retention important to you, Linda? I would say given the current, well, always, but particularly in this current market, uh, customer retention and customer delight and providing customer value is everything. In fact, your number one should be customer rate, because if you don't have that and you're acquiring more customers, it's what we call a leaky bucket. Um, Customers that are happy activate the flywheel of advocacy that we've talked about so much as one of the most powerful things um, of a healthy community, but also one of the most powerful traits that all hypergrowth companies share. Um, it's, you know, they're helping others adopt the new tooling. They're spreading that education. Uh, they're, you know, your champions on things like social media where they're sharing your product with their friends and their friends as friends and telling everybody around about you and spreading that word today in our networked reality this is the most powerful evidence of, you know, growth and virality. It's even in enterprise software, it's starting to be very consumer-like in how all of this works. And that makes sense, right? Enterprise and consumer, like we're all consumers of software. Those two things are completely collapsing in on each other in terms of how that technology is starting to get distributed and adopted. Yeah, I'm definitely with you there. And I think, you know, with all the noise, all the buzz that's going on right now inside of markets and inside of fundraising, I'd love to hear your current take on the climate, Linda. And look, is the compression of multiples and the re-emergence of down rounds something that worries you? It's hard to not look at the news, right? Um, We're very well, we're very lucky to be well capitalized. Um, And so I try not to get too caught up in it. Uh, in that the only valuation that matters is your exit valuation. And I think to your point earlier, like having been a VC, I have seen and heard battle stories of dark days and stories about companies that have raised down rounds who are incredibly successful and publicly traded today. And so I think that perspective makes me realize like this is a journey, right? It It is a multi-year journey, um, but I actually think all of this is a this correction, if you will, is a good thing um, in that it's enabled us to really look at the fundamentals and narrow the aperture of our focus. And to be clear, like this is what companies should always be doing. But in this age, in the previous age of kind of unfettered spending and growth, you get into kind of a bit of a prisoner's dilemma in that your competitive set may be subsidizing their growth with dollars in a way that you know, forces you to try to do something similar. And it's kind of like everybody's spending. And so like, can you be the one who, you know, isn't growing and isn't kind of subsidizing that growth? Um, now, we're very early. Uh, we're a young company. We've never been frivolous with our spending. And now we're very well capitalized. And so I think if anything, we're incredibly excited to go and execute and build and also make those right decisions on strategy, right, that perhaps other companies aren't as adept at doing and in that have this opportunity to increase our lead. Um, and so we kind of see this as like a almost a time to, I guess, not accelerate our spending, but accelerate our the gap uh, between us and, you know, any of our uh our uh, friendly uh, uh, set. And um, yeah, it gets us incredibly excited. 
Um, my COO uh, comes from 10, over 10 years at Okta where, you know, he joined when it was 30 people and saw that entire journey. And he always talks about how Todd McKinnon, the CEO of Okta, built Okta during a recession on purpose because he knew that that's when the iconic companies of tomorrow would arise. And so we're all really excited, right? Cycles come, cycles go. Uh, The important thing is not only to survive, but hopefully have an opportunity to thrive. Yeah, truly, truly wonderful there, Linda. And you know what? I'd love to transition slightly away from the world of startups and venture funding, more so to life topics itself. And I'd love to start, Linda, with one question, and that is, when you think of success, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? Okay, I'm going to go off the cuff here. The person that just came to mind is my dad. Um, and I don't mean here like success in the conventional career sort, but he's always had such a spirit of adventure and a passion for learning that has never ceased. And he instilled it in me. And I think for anyone keeping that kind of joie de vivre, despite the day-to-day reality, that's the success that we can all hope for. I love that. And I think, you know, the people closest to you, you absolutely see are are your biggest mentors and at least the, the individuals who have the most profound impact on your life. So I really, really enjoy that example you, you gave there, Linda. I think, you know, Dads, mums, parents, family, they are, you know, some of some of the greatest people and can really, you know, show you what success is, not necessarily in traditional categorical ways. So I'm behind that. What does your perfect day look like, Linda? Ooh. Uh a long bike ride outside in where I live, the great Pacific Northwest of the United States, Seattle, Washington. Um you know, maybe a little sprinkle of rain, some sunbursts in the distance over some mountain peaks. For me, that's nirvana. Sounds tremendous. And you mentioned rain. To be honest, I don't think I would include rain in my perfect day, partly because we get way too much of it over here on this side of the pond in London, Linda. But uh, the rest sounds sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we have very similar weather here, and I have learned to like it. Love it. <laughs> well, Linda, listen, I know we've come to the end now of the show, but it has been an immense pleasure having you on, you know, everything from building communities to, to life itself. It's been such a great conversation and I'm so glad we, uh, we got connected and were able to do it. Likewise, Alex really enjoyed this and, um, it was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me.